I grew up going to this church uh, for as long as I could remember, for a while. And as Zach said, we grew up together, and I actually got saved at this church. I still remember that it was just right out in that corner over there. God was pressing upon my heart truths and just the recognition of my sin and the need to repent, and God brought me to saving faith. And uh, my life has been different ever since, and it's just incredible to think that I have the privilege of being saved at this church, but also being able to speak God's word and edify this church through his word. And so I just really pray and hope that um, it will be a blessing to you and an honor uh, to see God's word proclaimed and not see the man up here. So I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then we can uh, start. Our gracious Father, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for, again, just the reality that we get to preach and hear your word and, uh, Lord, that you spoke to us and that you guide us in how we ought to live, how we ought to think, how we ought to uh, honor you. Father, I know that I need your strength, and I know that I need your spirit to work in my mouth and my heart to provide clarity and to speak your word with gentleness, with kindness, with boldness. And, uh, Father, I know that we need your spirit to help us to comprehend, understand, and even be changed in all of this, Lord. So I pray that uh, by your grace you would do this and that we would see more of Christ. We thank you, Christ, and I pray. Amen. So I know you guys are going through a transition with a pastoral search. That was something our church actually went through as well uh, just this past year. And it is difficult, and I just want to share my condolences and share, uh, just hang in there and... Um, just trust the Lord through this whole process that he really provides uh, who we need and when we really need it. And this text that I want to share with you today, it's a near and dear text in my heart because it shapes so much of how I think about church. It shapes so much of how uh, just what it means to go to church Sunday by Sunday. And as well, I feel like it will be a helpful gift to you as well to even think about, one, what does it look like for a pastor to come in and help you guys out? And also, what does it look like to come alongside whichever pastor that comes in? And the text today that we'll be talking about is Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And when you think about spiritual maturity and growing as a believer, how often do you think about that in the plural? The plural. And what I mean by that is, so you could think of maturity as in how mature am I? How do I need to grow in this way? And the plural, that singular plural would be how mature are we? We need to grow in this way. That's what I'm talking about. Because in an individualistic society that we live in, we often can tend towards the singular. Because we have to worry about our finance, my finances, my career goals, my financial issues, um, my family, whatever else it might be. We just tend towards the individual. But in Scripture, it gives and emphasizes the corporate nature of our faith. The corporate nature and the plural nature of how we ought to grow, how we ought to live the Christian life. One example is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. I think we know that the, how it says, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 
And we often just insert, oh yeah, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But actually, all of these yous that are said here, I'll read it for us. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. We just insert singular yous into there. But in reality, all of those yous in the Greek are plural yous. It's talking about the corporate nature of how the whole body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is true that the Holy Spirit indwells us, but Paul is emphasizing the corporate nature. And our text today emphasizes the corporate nature of spiritual growth in the church. And we know that we all need to grow. We know that we're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to be mature as believers. And we know that we're not quite there yet. We know that we sin. We know that we struggle. But, however, this text gives us a helpful blueprint for what it looks like to grow in godliness, for what it looks like to grow as a church, as a whole, in that corporate manner. So I'll read for us Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, and we'll hop right in. And it says this, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So in the context of Ephesians, many of you might be familiar, is that the first three chapters of Ephesians talks about a believer's position in Christ. All the blessings that Christ accomplishes and provides for the believer. And then after the end of chapter 3, Paul transitions and talks about the application, what it looks like to walk in a worthy manner of all the blessings that Jesus gives the believer. And the first application is he talks about unity. He talks about how the church ought to be unified together. And then the next topic he speaks about is spiritual growth. So today, we're going to look through Paul, how Paul gives three steps of spiritual growth in corporate Christ-like maturity. Three steps of growth in corporate Christ-like maturity. So the first point today is Christ gives word-centered gifts. This is how Jesus, in his plan of growth, is how he grows us. And the first step that he gives is he first gives these word-centered gifts found in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So after he talks about unity, he then talks about the diversity of the gifts over in verse 7. But each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So unified, there's one, but then each individual has been given a specific gift. And then Christ is the one that provides these gifts. And then he, Paul focuses how growth happens through a specific set of gifts, word-centered gifts. And the word-centered gifts, you'll see five different categories there. And the first one that he gives is apostles. And this means sent out ones. Could also mean messengers. And sometimes this is just used of normal believers. Barnabas was actually referred to as an apostle in Acts 14, 14. But in Ephesians, what this is referring to, what apostles is referring to, is 
the 12 disciples, those who saw the resurrected Jesus, those who were appointed by Christ to be sent out into the world, plus Paul, who is an apostle of untimely birth. And these individuals were given for a special purpose. Let's look at Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20, if you turn over just a page or two, you'll see the special purpose that apostles were given for Christ's church. And it says this, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And what that's referring to is the whole church is built upon this foundation and that part of the foundation is the apostles, meaning that the apostles were given so that we could know the word of God. Because at that time, the word of God wasn't fully written when apostles were still operating. And so they needed to know what God expected of them. And Paul, being an apostle, wrote this, and we have this word that we can learn of how to live and how to grow today. So that's what the apostles were done, is mainly they were given to start the foundation of the church and give the word of God, both in writing and verbally, for God's people. And the next group of word-centered gifts is the prophets. And these are ones who receive God's word and then speak it. Often they have, they might have a telling of the future, but more often they have the gift of receiving revelation from God and saying, this is what God says. And again, this was needed and necessary because God's word was not yet completed. They were building the foundation, and Ephesians 2.20 mentions apostles and the prophets. So both of these offices, these are no longer in operation for the church today because Paul, when he talks about apostles and prophets being tied to the foundation, if you think about a building, we build a foundation for a building, and then we build the walls, we build the roof. Are we to build another foundation on top of the building after the foundation is laid? Absolutely not, because once the foundation is built, everything else can fall into place. And the foundation is the word of God. And once the full word of God has been given to us, in Old and New Testament, prophets and apostles have built the foundation and there's no longer a need for these specific gifts. So those are two foundational ones for the early church that are not operating today, but then Paul transitions to ones that apply to us today. And the first one he talks about is the evangelist, the proclaimer of the gospel. I want to be clear, every single believer is called to evangelize, to share the gospel to make disciples of all nations. However, there are particularly gifted people that God just grants that gift and they can just go share the gospel. They just seem to be more natural at or they seem to have a heart and passion after that. And such people often turn into church planters or maybe they become missionaries and go out or maybe they're just a person that's in the local church and just has a a wide evangelist ministry that people can get behind. Regardless, the evangelists, these are people who proclaim the gospel and they're intimately connected to the church. Because often we think of an evangelist as just someone who roams around and isn't really tied to a local church, but they're actually tied to the church in the context of this passage. So that's one of the groups that operate today. And the other two gifts, the word-centered gifts, are the pastors and the teachers. So pastors, this refers to shepherds. These are those who guard and lead the flock. 
and care for the flock, nourish the flock, feed the flock. And then the other group is teachers, those that instruct the flock of what God's word says with already given revelation. So the apostles and the prophets, they give new revelation, but the teachers and pastors and evangelists, they give revelation based off what God's word has already been written. And I want you to notice something here. If you look in verse 11, if you have the NESV, you'll see the word some, or if you have an ESV or another translation, you might see the. So it says, he gave some as evangelists, some as pastors, or uh, sorry, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. If you notice, the some or the is not put with teachers. It's clubbed together. Pastors and teachers are clubbed together. And what Paul is trying to do there is he's trying to closely overlap these two offices. Because in reality, pastors, we know that in, Second Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3, that every pastor must be able to teach. That's a requirement of being a pastor. But we also know that not every teacher necessarily is a pastor. For example, you can have a Sunday school teacher, but they're not a pastor. You can have someone who's gifted in being able to teach the word of God and share the word of God, but they don't have the responsibility of shepherding the flock. So Paul is tying these two offices closely together, and, uh, but they're still different. And some people say they're the same, but they misuse a rule that only applies to singular nouns, but these are plural. So that's what we have is we have the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are word-centered gifts, gifted people that teach the word of God, that tell what God's word says on how we can live, how we can walk this Christian life. The first two form the foundation, and they no longer function, but the last three are for us today. And the word is so crucial for God's people, and we'll see why. We'll see why the word And these word-centered gifts are crucial to growing the church, crucial to us as a whole maturing in the faith. And we'll see the purpose of these gifts, and that comes to our second point, is the purpose of word-centered gifts, building the body. The purpose of word-centered gifts, building the body. So in verse 12, we see that Paul gives the purpose of these gifts, and the purpose is actually quite surprising. It's found in verse 12, it says, for, that's the purpose, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So you'd think that the pastors, those that, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, they'd be doing all this work, that they would actually be the people that grow the church because they have the word of God, they're gifted with it, and they're the ones that really are gonna get the church growth and maturity going. But what Paul does, and God's and Christ's plan for growth is a little bit different. He says, equipping of the saints. And that word equipping, it's meaning preparing or outfitting for a purpose. Kind of has the idea of Luke 640. That word is also used. It says the pupil or the student, when he is fully trained, that's that word, fully trained, he will be like his teacher. And The idea you could think of that is, imagine you're on a medical mission, or you're going on a medical mission. You're not going to just take a stethoscope and maybe some Door of the Explorer Band-Aids and then go out to Africa. But you're going to want all sorts 
of medical equipment. You want to be fully equipped, fully armed, fully prepared. And that's the idea that this word is conveying, that the leaders, those who actually teach the word, that they actually equip the saints. And that's not just high-level Christians. Saints in Ephesians is just talking about everyday believers. Those leaders, those people with word gifts, they equip everyday believers to do something, to be ready for a specific task. And what is that task that they prepare them for? And Paul answers that question for us in the same verse, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. You might also have the work of ministry. And service ministry, some people get mixed up and say, oh, it's just pastoral ministry. But ministry can just be used as any type of service, cleaning up or serving widows. That's the kind of word that this is conveying. And, and the leaders equip them so that they can do work, that they can actually put effort into something. That when you receive the word of God, it is not just, I just listen and hear what God's word says, and that's nice, and then I can go on my day. But you are supposed to hear the word of God, and then you take that word of God, and then you actually do the work. It prepares you to do something, and it's the work of ministry. It's the work of service. And what does that service look like? What does it look like to actually serve the church? First Peter, let's turn over there. First Peter 4, 10 through 11. This gives a very helpful kind of categories and buckets for what service looks like. First Peter 4, 10 through 11. It says this, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So serving one another. Each one is given a gift and you serve one another. And then he divides it into two different categories. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So do you see that? There's kind of two categories of serving. There's the speaking gifts, and then there's the serving with your hands gifts, that kind of thing. And we know that we have evangelists, pastors, teachers, but we know that maybe some people are a little more gifted in speaking. Maybe not formally teaching, but maybe encouraging. Maybe counseling someone through something. Maybe uh, giving admonishment. Just interperson per, through the word comes out of your mouth and you build up and serve other believers. That maybe you're just more gifted at that. And that's one kind of category that Peter put serving into. And another category is serves, more of a hands-on type of ministry. I'm sure you see Mike Eastman in the back helping out with sound. I'm sure you also see people cleaning the church throughout the week. Many different types of things are needed to help the church run on a daily basis, and that is also necessary. An illustration of that is Acts 6, when the uh, Jews... And then the Hellenistic Jews, widows, they needed to be served food. And this was, happened in the early church. And the problem is the apostles, those who were teaching, had to keep serving them. And it was taking up their time from praying and actually teaching the word of God and studying the word of God. But the solution is, 
is they appointed trustworthy men who can help serve those widows so that it could free up those leaders, those teachers, so they can focus on the ministry that God's appointed to them. And so when you serve, that you come along as a supporting role for the ministry of the word, that you'd be surprised that if every person that served just walked out and then you just had uh, the people who taught, you'd be surprised how easily things would go up in flame in a church. And so it's necessary to have both. We need the word to be spoken publicly and privately. And we need those who give support so that ministry can flow and that ministry can happen. And something to know too is actually all believers still are called to have some sort of role in speaking truth into one another's lives. If you turn back to Ephesians 4, uh, just a few verses after our passage, Ephesians 4.15, it says this, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. So there, Paul puts the responsibility of speaking the truth into all believers as well. It's not just if you're particularly gifted at words, at the word, that every believer still has some obligation to speak truth in each other's life. Because even if you're more gifted in serving, you're still going to have friends in the church. Your friends might go through something hard in life. They might go through some difficulty. And you might be in a particular position to speak that truth into their life. So we know that people are mainly, or people are given word gifts or serving gifts. And, but also, people also have the responsibility to speak the truth in love. And the point that Paul is again trying to make is that the teachers don't just speak the word and then you sit there and receive it and do nothing. But it is to equip you to do the work that's needed in the church. And it equips you and it teaches you to know what serving even looks like, to know how to serve with a godly attitude. Because if you serve, but you don't even have a right heart attitude behind it, that's not really pleasing to God at all. But knowing how to do that, knowing how to do that with the right attitude is important. Maybe they teach you how to encourage people, how to admonish people, how to give counsel to people, how to just show compassion, so on and so forth. That's the purpose of pastors and teachers, so that you would know how to do the daily ministry that needs to be done within the church. And evangelists, too. Let's take a step back and think about that, because evangelists, we often think, oh, they're gifted with evangelism. I'll let them do their thing, and I won't really interact with them. But in reality, evangelists, too, are meant to equip you to evangelize and be faithful in your spheres of influence as well. So whatever it be, the attitude that us as members amongst the church need to have is it's not just, okay, the leaders are doing all that work. Let them do that. Delegate it to them. But the members do it as well. And it's not an attitude of when you come into church, what am I going to get? What am I going to get from today at church? What am I going to get from today at this Bible study? But the attitude that Paul is trying to get at here is how can God use me? God, how can you use me for other brothers and sisters? As you walk through this door, through those doors, it's always, God, what can you use me for in their lives? And Acts 20, 35 says this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's an amazing attitude because 
if we think about that, because oftentimes when you come through church and we're like, oh man, it was not a very good day. I didn't get what I wanted. People didn't say hi the way that I wanted them to say hi. People didn't do this to me. It's focusing on ourselves. But remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And something else to take from this is that if you are weak in a particular area, say you don't know how to counsel someone. What if someone, their spouse died? What if someone, they're going through marital issues? What if someone, they're going through depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, if they come up to you and say, I need help, would you know how to help that person? And if you don't know how to help that person, you should seek and desire for your pastors and teachers to teach you, to tell you, how do I do this? How am I supposed to use the word of God? And that's something to think about as you're looking for a pastor is, is this pastor going to help train you, teach you how to use the word of God, how to serve properly with the right attitude in the church, not just serve legalistically, serve out of obligation, but serve out of a right heart. That's the type of pastor, teacher that you ought to be looking for and be praying for. Now, what does this work lead to? Pastors, teachers, evangelists, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. And then what does that work result in? In verse 13, it says, to the building up of the body of Christ. Or sorry, verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. That is the result of the body being equipped and then actually doing the work is the body is built up. It's grown. And when it talks about the body of Christ, it's talking about the local church, the gathering of saints together, because Paul is writing to churches. He's writing to local believers and saying, when you do the work, when you're properly equipped, when you act out and serve the body, the church is built up. And it doesn't say building up programs. It doesn't say building up a building. It says building up a body. It's people-oriented is Paul's point here. That when you serve and when you have programs or when you have traditions or things that you do, it's not just doing it for the sake of doing it. It's doing it because you know that other people, other believers that trust in Christ are going to be encouraged, built up, edified. And I really love that this is how God planned spiritual growth for the church. Because imagine if it was just the leaders. Imagine if it was just them doing all the work that they can't be friends and, clo- and close, uh, yeah, close friends with every single person in the church. I mean, with a smaller church, it's more possible. But as church grows, that you're going to have varying degrees of relationships. People are going to have varying degrees of hurts and pains. But when each member of the church is engaged in serving and helping and building up, the load is spread all throughout the body. And we're all doing it together. And that's God's wisdom. And also God's wisdom and kindness that he would even use us to grow each other. He doesn't need us to grow each other. He didn't need to choose this means, but he wanted, he, one, he saved sinners who did not deserve him. And then on top of that, he allows them to be used in another believer's life to make them more like Christ, to build them up. It's a beautiful thing. And 
some people might still try to argue and say, you know, the equipping, the work of ministry and the building up, it's all just the leaders. It's, they might be hard-headed at that. But if you look at Ephesians 4, 7, as we mentioned at the beginning, it says each of us is given, grace was given. And in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This whole section is talking about how each individual has been given a gift, and when each individual works properly, the whole body grows. So this text here is, again, just illustrating the fact that as a body, each member needs to do its part. If you think about it, if I had a liver that decided, you know what, I don't want to be a liver anymore, and I'm not going to act like a liver, what's going to happen? I'm going to probably die. The body is going to be detrimented greatly when one member, one little liver, doesn't act like it should. And so even when a toe is not acting right, even when any part of the body is missing, the body feels it. It's greatly detrimented. And so as you think about this church, as you think about the body of believers, if you are not properly working, it actually affects the growth of the whole church. And if one person is, uh, your neighbor in church is not properly working, that affects you as well. It's not just something of, oh, you know, my spiritual growth is fine. But them, it's okay. I'm not affected by that. But again, it's the corporate aspect of growth. And if the body is not working, if another part of the body is not functioning, then that affects you as well. That's how we have to think about it. So that's the way that the church grows is that Christ, he gives these gifts, these gifted men and women, and what happens is they equip the saints and then the saints do the work and it builds up the body. And then the question is, what does a fully built mature body look like? What does that lead to? And our final point is the result of the body functioning, spiritual maturity. The result of the body functioning, spiritual maturity. Before we hop into verse 13, I'll read it for us. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I want you to notice the corporate terms that are in here. Until we all, that's a corporate term. Unity, that's a corporate term. And then it says, singular, a mature man. Again, a corporate, altogether term. And so that's just something to keep in mind as we talk about spiritual maturity. And then it says this in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And that word attain there, it's to reach a goal, to arrive. And it's qualified by all, every single one of us, that the church isn't mature until all the church is mature, every single member. Again, as I was saying, it, we can't just say, oh, I'm doing fine. That person, I don't, it doesn't really matter if they're growing or not. But if a person is immature in, in our church, in your church, that means you as a whole are not mature as well. That's the, the weighty reality of what spiritual maturity looks like. So you aren't happy when you're just mature, but you want every single person 
to be mature as well. All attain. And all attain to what? And at this point, Paul describes maturity in three different ways. So the first way that he describes maturity is he describes it as unity. Maturity is unity. And that oneness, being in harmony, the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Now, that's an interesting way of describing maturity. Why would he say that maturity equals unity? And there's a lot of other questions that come up as well. Uh, but first, why does he tie unity with maturity? It's because in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, if the analogy is a body, then imagine if your hand was severed from your body. Imagine if your leg was severed from your body, your head was severed from your body. Different internal organs were separated from your body. Would that be a mature, healthy, grown-up church? Absolutely not. And that's his point, is that maturity as a body, you need to be unified. It's something that we take for granted with our own physical bodies, is that our body is always in unison and one together. But as a church, that's something that we have to fight for. As Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 kind of states, is that's crucial and important to any application of our Christian faith, is being unified with the rest of the believers. So that's why unity is so closely tied with maturity. But then he, what's unity of? What's, what are we unified in? That also poses an interesting question because Paul says the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Why does he say that maturity is unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God? Titus 3, 8 through 9, I'll read that for us, actually gives a little clarification on that. And I'll read it for us. It says this, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but, here it is, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factitious man, and after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. And what Paul is trying to convey here is the disunifying effects of false teaching. When false teaching comes in, when something that is opposite to the truth comes into the church, what that does is it doesn't unify the church. It makes fractures in the church. It, put, it pits people against one another. And that's why Paul says unity of the faith and knowledge of Christ, because true unity is unity in the truth. You can try to be unified in falsehood, but at the end of the day, we will be broken and fractured apart. It has to be in the word of God. It has to be in truth. And again, another question that comes up is, why is it knowledge of Christ specifically? Why didn't he just say unity in the truth? But why he says knowledge and faith, or a faith and knowledge of the Son of God? And the reason why that that equals maturity is because of the whole point of Ephesians that he's been trying to, to get at, is that a robust knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ and his work is what actually matures believers. Robust faith and knowledge of Christ and his work is what matures believers. Ephesians, if you think about it, Paul doesn't start off with what you have to do. He starts off with what Christ has done. 
He starts off with what, who Christ is. And in conveying that, he then says what you do in light of that. So you see that a true maturity starts in a robust faith and knowledge of Christ and what he's done. Colossians is another book that just conveys that whole thing. First few chapters. People are trying to say, or in chapter 3, you see that people are trying to say that, okay, to be mature, you might have Christ. To be mature, you need to have these laws. You need to not eat this, not eat that. You need to do this, do that. You need to celebrate these festivals, do all of that. Then Paul, he starts off by showing how superior and supreme Christ is. And how superior and supreme Christ's work is for the believer to make them mature and make them complete. And he says, I want every believer to be complete. And if Colossians 1, uh, 28 through 29, he essentially says, I, we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ so that we may present every man complete in Christ. True knowledge of Christ is what makes believers truly mature. And something else to think about is if you say that you know Christ, you say that you love him, you say that you have this full, rich, mature knowledge of him, but then say someone hurts you and you don't forgive them. Say you're in conflict with other people. Say you're lacking love or patience with someone. That really means your knowledge of Christ is actually deficient. Because if you think about Christ, Christ's perfect patience If you know Christ's perfect patience towards you, if you know Christ's perfect forgiveness towards you, but then you don't do that to someone else, it shows that you don't really truly know that aspect of Christ experientially, and then you live it out in your life to other people. And that's why he says that maturity is unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So when the whole church has that true knowledge. And then that true knowledge produces right living. Then that is a mature church. So that's the first picture that he gives. And the second picture is that maturity is corporate. Maturity is corporate. And it says, uh, to a mature man in verse 13. To a mature man. And I mentioned before, but a mature man that's singular. He's saying, he's not saying, okay, you all grow up and mature to mature men, to mature men and women, to mature saints. He says, to a singular mature man. This means the measure of maturity that Paul is talking about here is corporate. That you can't just say, again, it's just me, but it's, it's we, it's us. And think about it this way. Say if there's a person and then they, say they are, have a mature body all except for a little baby arm. Like the arm stays as a baby. Would you say that's a mature, fully healthy man? No. There's something wrong when not every single member matures and grows at the same rate and at the same pace. And again, that's Paul's point is that all of us, every single one of us, as a church, as a body. For us to say that we're mature, we have to see all of us at that point, all of us together. So again, greater concern needs to be for corporate maturity. When you come to church, you look out, Lord, what ways does our church need to grow? What ways 
are people in need. I know I need to grow, but what ways can you use me in other people's lives as well? You have to think with a greater concern for corporate maturity. And the third picture that Paul gives of, of spiritual maturity is Christ. That third picture of maturity is Christ. Verse 13, at the end, he says, to the measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That, word, that phrase, measure of stature, it's really just talking about bodily maturity. Like, and the body maturity that belongs to the fullness of Christ. What Paul is trying to say there is, Christ is the head of the church. He's this mature, fully grown head. And then we as a body are his body, and we're to grow and match the maturity that Christ is. He's the standard of maturity that we're to grow to, and we're to match that. And that is a tall order, is it not? To be like Christ, that's what maturity is. When we're fully matured and like him, that's what Paul is trying to get at here. And, but when we read this, we say, okay, he says, measure of stature belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does that fullness of Christ even mean? What does it mean to be to the level of Christ's fullness? Fullness is actually a theme that runs all throughout Ephesians. It's a beautiful theme. And it's beautiful what it is actually tied to. So let's first look at Ephesians 3.19. And we'll see a similar theme to what we saw here that we're to grow up into that fullness. Ephesians 3.19. It says this, and to know the love of Christ, that's which, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to what? All the fullness of God. That fullness word is used there again. And the way that we grow up in the fullness is that we know the love of Christ. Again, that ties back to what Paul was saying earlier, that maturity equals knowledge and faith of the Son of God. And specifically here, knowledge of his love is what will grow believers and be filled up to the fullness of God. But then there's also another instance when this fullness is used and referred to the church. So we know we're supposed to grow to that fullness. And Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, this will really help clarify what does that fullness mean? What does it mean to be filled up to the fullness of God? What does it mean to grow into the fullness of Christ? Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. It says this, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is Christ. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And here, catch this, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is referred to as the fullness of Christ. So we recognize we have to grow up into the fullness of God. We have to grow up into essentially every aspect of what Christ is. That the Christ, the glorious Christ, the great Christ, we have to grow up into those aspects of him. We have to resemble him, to look like him. And then Ephesians 1.22, it says that we are his fullness. Essentially, what the fullness of him who fills all in all, the great Christ who is over everything, the church is his fullness, meaning essentially that the church is the manifestation of Christ on this earth. 
That's what it's trying to convey there, that the fullness of Christ, that the church is that fullness. The church is that which represents Christ here on earth, and we're that fullness, but we still need to grow up more. There's those two kind of uh, truths in tension. But that's the glorious reality, is that the church manifests Christ here on this earth. And this verse will seal it all in and illustrate that for us perfectly. Let's turn over one more time to Ephesians 3.20. Ephesians 3.20. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory. Okay, so he says, to him be the glory, God be the glory. What would you expect? Be the glory in Christ, right? And it says that. Be glory in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. But then it says this. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What this text means is it illustrates the fact that the church is unified with Christ. The church is not separated with Christ at all. In fact, it's so unified with Christ that Paul can say, God be glorified in the church and that not be blasphemy. That God be glorified in the church because church is just closely tied and the full and is uh, not equated, but closely tied with Christ himself. That for God to be glorified in the church, it just means God is glorified in Christ. That is the groundbreaking, amazing thing. That as broken and as faulty as the church might be, that God can glorify himself and chooses to glorify himself, chooses to display his amazing attributes, his amazing glory in the lives of us, working together corporately. And that's incredible because can people actually see God? Can people walk outside and look and see God and see his attributes, see what he's like? There's a certain degree, but he's the invisible God. That's what he's referred to as. And we can't see him. But what this means that we're the fullness of Christ, that we are to grow up into that fullness, is that we display what that invisible God looks like here on earth. We display what Christ looks like here on earth for those around us to see as we work together as a body, as we grow as a body, as we live as a body. So think about Christ's love. Think about his love. His love is so incredible and so amazing that those who are sinners, those who have broken his law, he gives everything, life, breath, and a way of living. He expects them to live for his glory, but then sinners choose to live for themselves. Sinners choose to not acknowledge God's law, say, I don't need you, God. But then Christ, God, he sends his son. He sends Christ, and Christ loves us even to the point of death on the cross and endures all the way to death. That kind of sacrificial love, that's the type of love that we can display to one another when someone hurts us, when someone harms us, when someone is not worthy of love. When you choose to love them, you have an opportunity to display Christ to the world, to display Christ to that person, to manifest Christ in a little glimpse of what his love is like. Think about his forgiveness again as well. Christ forgives us and he says, I will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. When you forgive in that kind of manner, 
even when it hurts to do so, even when they've done it multiple times to you, you can put on display that beautiful forgiveness that we receive from Christ himself. Think about the patience of Christ. When Christ was here on this earth and teaching his apostles, three years of ministry with Jesus Christ, and they're still arguing about who's the greatest amongst them. They're still arguing with one another. They're still not getting it, but Christ never gave up on them. Christ continued to care for them. And think about even your own sins, all the sins that you have today. Think about how God has never given up on you, never failed you, never chosen to stop loving you, but continually waited to the proper time to lead you to the right point, to grow you. When you are patient with others in that type of way, with one another in the church, even when the growth is slow, even maybe you tell them something and they don't listen to you the first time, but you don't give up. You get to display Christ and show Christ in that way. And in compassion for the lost, you get to show Christ. And even thinking about his endurance. When we think about Christ, when he went on the cross and he endured sin on our behalf, that God put all the wrath that we deserved on Christ's shoulders when he was on the cross. Did Christ sin at all when he was on the cross? Did Christ sin? Absolutely not. Not a single moment, even in his suffering for eternal damnation that was deserved by us, when God was putting that on his son, Christ did not sin one moment in all of that. But think about us. We often use our sufferings, our trials, things that we have to endure as an excuse to sin. But Christ endured so much more than we could ever even begin to imagine. But then he never sinned. So when we endure the trials that we go through, and we seek to not use it as, as an excuse to sin, but seek to glorify God, seek to have compassion, seek to show forth Christ in that, we display Christ in that way. Think of these beautiful things that we get to put on display as a church that you alone are not enough to display all of that fullness. Maybe you, you're lacking in patience, but another member is better in patience Think of that beauty is that when you look as the tapestry of a church as a whole, you get to see a more full picture of Christ. And so we need each other to display all of who Christ is. It is not enough for me to just say, I can display Christ. It's arrogant to say that. That I just, I'm alone and needed to display the fullness of Christ. But we need each other to do that. And we need each other to grow into the fullness of Christ. And others need you to grow in all the fullness of Christ. What a privilege that God chooses to display himself to a watching world and that we are his means of doing that. And we're also the means of him growing his church, that Christ is the one who grows, as Ephesians 4, 15 through 16 says. It's Christ that does the growth, but he does that according to the working of each individual member, all of us doing that together. So what we need to take from this is if Christ, his fullness, all his glory is the standard of maturity, that just means there's a lot of work to be done. Because if we look at ourselves, we see how far short, how fall, how far we fall short of displaying all of Christ and who he is. But then we look around at church and we see the brokenness of our church and our church is as well. 
And we see there is so much work to be done. So let us trust Christ to do that work and trust that we are also part of his means to do that work. And let's go and have a great concern for the body and do that work. And the question that you need to ask is, if an unbeliever were to walk into this church and they were to see the interactions, to see how you talk to one another, to see how you live out your lives, maybe even see your private conversations about people about church, what would they see? Would they see things that they've normally seen? Oh yeah, these people will gossip about each other. These people backbite against each other. These people do this and that. I understand that. That makes sense to me as an unbeliever. Or would they look in and they see, I can't understand why these people are doing what they're doing. They're showing love that makes no sense. They're showing an endurance, patience, kindness, gentleness, compassion that makes no sense at all to me. That's the goal, is when people watch at how we live our lives, do they see something that is unknown to them, which is Christ. One thing I want to also appeal to as well is that if you are an unbeliever, that you're not going to be able to just add on a few rules and then start being like Christ. Because if you're an unbeliever, the problem is, is that you are hostile to God right now, is that you are not united to Christ right now, and that you can't just start being like Christ because you need a changed heart. You need a changed life. You first need to turn to Christ, that he is your only hope, that he is the one that lived perfectly and died righteously on the cross and took on punishment for the sins of those who believe in him and then rose from the dead and offers new life and new hope and forgiveness of sins to all who believe. If you put your trust in Christ, you will be saved. And you then can display and put on Christ, but you first need to know him in this way. So don't just think you can become like Christ by putting on a bunch of actions and deeds, but you first need to be knowing who Christ is. You first need to trust and believe that he is your only hope. Something else I want to challenge us as well is if you feel you have no love or concern for the body at all, that you may not be a believer. That's something that you have to consider is that if you just don't care about church, you don't care about believers, that you go on and you think that your Christian life is just about you and God, you have to remember that First John challenges us and says that if we love God, we will love our brothers. And that brothers is talking about those in church. If we love God, we will love church. Because again, church is the fullness of Christ. To love the church essentially is to love Christ as well. Is one of those means. So I challenge you as well to consider there's no love at all. Ask yourself, Lord, do I need to put faith in Christ for the first time? So Paul outlines for us what corporate spiritual growth and maturity looks like. Christ provides gifted men to equip the saints, and the saints do that work, and then the body becomes more like Christ. And what patience and forgiveness when we fail to do this. That we fall so short of this, but Christ has not diminished his love in any kind of way. Christ has not 
casts us aside, but he's continually patient and he continues to work in us and work through us to see us grow. What an amazing Christ and God we have. So there's much work to be done. Let's depend on Christ and let's go do that work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, again, the time that we get to uh, just hear how we ought to grow as a church, grow as a body of believers. I'm so thankful for this church and how you've continued to mature it and uh, hold it fast in all the ups and downs of life. I pray this for not only this church, but church in Lighthouse as well and all the other churches that proclaim the name of Christ. I pray that you do help us to hold fast to your word, have men and women um, that are seeking to do this work. And Father, I pray that you would just forgive us when we fail to display you. But Father, I pray that you would help us to grow more and more and show the watching world how beautiful and glorious our Savior is and what he does. We thank you in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Thank you.